Today's podcast episode with Alan Rose is sponsored by the very important AIRS organization, the Alliance in Reconstructive Surgery. 250,000 women are diagnosed with invasive breast cancer in the United States alone every year. AIRS was founded to be a resource and a support system for these women in both practically educating them on their surgical options, their health insurance coverage, as well as providing emotional support during a very difficult time in their lives. My guest today, Alan Rose, former Miss America contestant, reconstructive patient herself, activist, and all-around changemaker, is the spokesperson for AIRS. You can find out more information about AIRS at www.airsfoundation.org. That's www.airsfoundation.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Changing the Course. I'm Atara, attorney in New York City, founder of the Curly Girl Movement, author of the Curly Girly book series, and owner of curlygirly.com. And my podcast mission is to bring interesting, newsworthy, and current topics to the forefront with dynamic guests who help us to change the way we see things and open our world to new ideas. Today, I'm excited to be chatting with Alan Rose. Alan is a former Miss America contestant who made headlines across the globe with her controversial decision to undergo a preventative double mastectomy after losing her mother, grandmother, and great aunt to breast cancer. Alan's story inspired celebrities like Angelina Jolie and a new generation of women to take charge of their healthcare choices. Determined to encourage other women to love themselves with scars and flaws, Alan boldly became the first woman with a mastectomy to model for Sports Illustrated Swimsuit. Alan is also the founder of Previver, a nonprofit women's health platform, which serves as a resource for women undergoing mastectomies. A change maker, a leader, and my guest today. So excited to be chatting with you, Alan. How are you? It is my pleasure to be on. I am doing just great. How about you? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. So, you know, you really have done so much for women across the world. I'm not even sure where to begin. So let's start with your story of breast cancer, because I know that your story um, is sadly the story of many women today, right? So let's get right into that and, and tell us, you know, how did you become a spokesperson for this or somebody who like felt you need to get out there? and do something and make a change? Well, my story, sadly, like a lot of women like me, starts with um, other women in my family. So my mom was diagnosed for the first time with a stage three, very aggressive breast cancer in her late 20s. Um, she unfortunately had one breast removed and, and lived most of her life uh, with one breast. And so I, I always knew my mother as a cancer survivor and um, somebody who had battled that. and. At the same token, I realized as time went by that this wasn't just my mother, it was my grandmother, it was my great aunt, it was so many women in my family had, had lost their lives to breast cancer and that this was something that was likely going to affect my life. So um, after I had lost my mom, she, she had a reoccurrence when I was 12 and she passed away when I was 16. And my dad sat me down a couple of years after and brought up the idea of having a, a preventative surgery where, you know, I would essentially remove my breast tissue in an effort to, to prolong my life and prevent breast cancer. And 
I looked at him like he was crazy. I said, Dad, I was a late bloomer. You know, I I was the kid who got picked on in school. You know, I finally got my breast. I'm developing. Like, I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm I'm becoming a woman. I'm going off to college. I want to reinvent myself. Um, And he just looked at me straight in the face. And, you know, I tell people this quote all the time. He said, you're going to end up dead, 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 just like your mom. And you know, at, at 18, I thought this was a very crass way of addressing your daughter and, and somebody who just lost their mom. And, but I think my dad knew that as an 18 year old, he kind of needed to beat it into my head to say, this is something that you have to take seriously because your mother wasn't diagnosed in her fifties or in her sixties. She was you know, 27 years old when she had her first diagnosis and a very aggressive breast cancer. And so um, that kind of planted the seed in my mind, so to speak. And as years went on, um, you know, any chance I had to sort of advocate for breast cancer awareness and things like that, I was always really interested in doing. And I got to college and I saw, um, on this email listserv, somebody had sent out, a, an email asking for women who had a connection to breast cancer to enter this, um, breast cancer charity pageant. And I was not the type of person you would ever imagine to be in a pageant. I played in a punk rock band in high school. I was the offbeat kind of kid. It was uh, not, not, not my MO at the time, but I said, you know, let's throw all caution to the wind. My mom probably would have loved to see me wear a dress like this and do all of it. So I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and, and give it a try. Um, and I ended up winning and, you know, long story short, I got bit by the bug. I competed at Miss USA and then I did Miss America. And, um, I had this really unique moment where my charitable platform was advocating for preventive healthcare. And, uh, I shared my story with a friend about, you know, potentially undergoing this surgery at some point in my life. And before I knew it, it was on the homepage of people.com. It was on Fox and friends. I was doing the today show, good morning, America friends, you know, all, all of these major networks and, and the story just spread like wildfire all over the world. And, and this was prior to Angelina Jolie, um, having her surgery. So it was really one of the first people coming out and publicly saying that this, this is an option for women. And, um, you know, it just, it opened up a, a completely different world to me. Well, you know, I'm listening to you tell your story and it really, as I said, and as you said, it's the story of so many women, sadly, um, who, who are, you know, suffering with this horrible um, cancer that especially when you get it at such a young age is so, is so problematic, right? Um, so I, I want to talk about that a little bit at length, but I want to, for a moment, just talk about losing your mother, if you don't mind. Um, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be a 12-year-old girl, right? Such a, a young child, really, um, to find out that your mother is has breast cancer. So you knew even before that, but I guess it, re- it, it became recurring at that age. Yeah, so is that she, what she'd had um, that first bout in her 20s. And then unfortunately, 20 years later, she had a reoccurrence in the other breast. Um, and for, for years, my dad had sort of begged her, you know, it's a ticking time bomb. Why, why would you not get rid of that remaining breast? It's, you know, really a liability. And I think for her, um, it was sort of the last vestige of her femininity. And she was never able to reconstruct that first breast. And so she felt so attached to it 
Um, and I mean, she just was a mom too. She was busy. She had uh, three kids and my dad and she ran her own business and, you know, all of these things in life just sort of got in the way. Um, and the catalyst for her actually finding the breast cancer was her, her younger brother was diagnosed with small cell lung cancer and he died a month after his diagnosis. And wow. my mom just said, okay, this is it. Um, I got to be around for my children. So I'm going to go in, have that mammogram I've been meaning to get, have this preventative surgery on the remaining breast and, and then move on with my life. And um, unfortunately, uh, she did that scan. They developed, or they discovered another stage three breast cancer. And, um, you know, about four years later, uh, she lost her life to that breast cancer. So you really watched her um, dying, right? For such critical years of your childhood and your like early teenage years. How did that impact you? I certainly think that it um, made me realize that I didn't have the luxury of my youth that maybe a lot of my friends uh, did where they were thinking about more I don't want to say frivolous, but just normal teenager things, um, you know, boyfriends and boys hormones, and you know. friends. And, exactly. you know, what am I wearing? <laughs> exactly. And in all of these sort of things, you know, thinking of, oh, where am I going to go to college or what sports team am I on? And all this sort of um, stuff that's just normal for kids. And, and for me, it was, uh, you know, coming back to school and having to to think about what's the conversation going to be like with my friends when I have to tell them that I lost my mom this summer. Um, and how am I going to face these important moments of my life without her? You know, I just, I just turned 16 a month before my mom passed away. And I mean, it was, it was everything. It was getting a driver's license. It was picking on a prom dress, graduating, going to college, um, getting married, having children, you know, all these, these special moments in your life that you assume you're going to share with your mother and you need her guidance for, um, I just felt really alone. And I was very fortunate to have great family, but nobody can replace your mom. And so I feel like I, I became a mom collector. <laughs> I, anyone who was a, a strong female figure in my life, whether it was the, the mother of a friend or you know an adult uh, female friend, um, I started feeling like I got little pieces of my mom back through, through all of these women. I love but. that term. That's such a great term. A mom collector. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you were seeking that. Moms. <laughs> right. Right. You were seeking something from all of those women, um, to try to hold on to pieces of, of what it felt like to have a mom. Yeah. And, and I also, I grew up, um, in a household with all men, you know, my dad, I have two brothers. I right. had pretty exclusively male, male friends. You know, I was the, the hipstery sort of kid. But as I got older, I realized the importance of female friendships in my life. And, and I think not having my mom made me realize just how important it is to have some sort of female figure, whether it's, uh, it's a sibling or an aunt or your mom or um, just a great friend. Uh, it makes a difference. And, and I think every woman needs that. Yes, I think the relationship that women have with each other is very, very different even than you have with the best spouse in the world, your best husband. Um, so I think that you, that is a really important point. So did your mom leave you with any, um, I'm sure she left you with many, many things, but, but did she say anything specifically to you the way your dad had said about, Hey, this is a genetic uh, mutation, like take care of it. Was that something she ever said to you? Is that just coming from your father? 
My mom was uh, all business all the time. <laughs> so she was very honest with me from a very young age about all of the sort of touchy, sensitive subjects, whether it was uh, sex or relationships or, or life or um, moving forward or your health. And so I think that that took away, you know, a bit of my childhood as well, because she was so honest. I, I'm grateful for it now, but um, you sort of lose the the blinders that you have as a kid when, when your parents are being so open and honest with you. But um, my mom left me uh, her journals when she passed away. And my, my aunt kept them until I turned 18. She said, look, I think you should wait <laughs> until you're a little bit older. So you can kind of dive into the um, you know, really the emotions that my mom was going through battling cancer and all of that. And, and as I went through the journals, um, I found a letter from my mom to me and it was, it's about four pages. And I would say it's, it's 5% mom love and 95% mom advice. Um, and she, she really sort of laid out all of these things that I might face in my life and what, what her best advice was for me. So you know, who, who she thought I was as a person, you know, as much as she could discern from being, having a 16 year old, um, you know, I think you're this type of person and maybe you'll go into this field. And when you're looking for a spouse someday, um, this is who I hope, you know, you, you find in your life. Or, you know, she even talked about my, my future fertility. She said, um, look, we don't carry a breast cancer gene mutation in this family, but we carry another very rare um, mutation that can affect your future male children. And maybe you wanna undergo IVF when you decide to have children because you can eliminate this through genetic testing and, and really giving me this very practical advice. Um, and I always say that it's, it's just this letter where no matter what I'm facing in my life, if I go back and I read it, I find some new little morsel of information or guidance or it's, it's almost like I, it's the first time that I'm reading it because something sort of pops something up. new pops out at you each time. Yeah, wow. yeah, and I think it's it's the type of letter that only a mother could leave you. Yes, and what a special gift to, to have that because it's a piece of her that she wrote just for you, and you have that always. So that's something so special she did for you. So it sounds like she understood the dangers just the way your father did. But walk yeah. me forward um, a little bit. So here you are in the you know Miss America pageant, Miss USA, everything's fantastic. At what point do you say, okay, you know, I have to get serious about, you know, this mutation I have and I have to undergo surgery. So this was a very um, a tough decision for me when uh, it, it's easy to talk about um, and easy to kind of think about in your head and plan, but when it gets down to brass tacks and it's okay, um, you know, a lot of my, my young adult life was centered around the way that I looked, um, working in the modeling industry, competing in pageants, um, you know, and whether I liked it or not, my identity in, in large part was sort of wrapped up in, in how I presented myself to the world and that meant how I looked. And so um, having a surgery like this, where I was going to remove my breasts and pretty much um, what I thought, you know, and end my modeling career and life as I knew it. Um, I wasn't sure if I'd have complications and maybe I'd have to live my whole life without my breasts. You know, my mom had the same thing. She had a really radical mastectomy all the way down to the chest wall. She couldn't reconstruct. And, 
And so I just had to get to, to the point in my life where I said, um, you know, I don't want to suffer the same fate as my mom. And, um, you know, in, in that letter that my mom had written to me, one of the lines that she said was, you know, I'm so sorry to leave you because you'll need me for many years and not just a few, you know, and it's not, it's not fair to lose your mom. And, and I just sort of took a step back and said, you know, I, I might not be married. I might not have children yet, but I don't want to have to tell my 16 year old daughter someday that she's, she's going to have to spend the rest of her life without her mom. And I don't want my children to have to, um, to face those special moments in their life without me. And I know they don't exist now, but I hope that they exist in the future. And so why wouldn't I do it now when, when I'm young, I have the best opportunity to heal. I have access to really great physicians. Um, I was living in the, the Washington DC area at the time. And so I just sat down and I said, okay, you know, now's it. And so- How um, old were you at this time? I was 26 when, when I had my surgery. Um, it was March of 2015. Wow. I had my first procedure. So I had the mastectomy. They put um, what's called uh, expanders under my chest muscles, where they basically fill you up with saline to accommodate a breast prosthesis. So a special type of implant um, to kind of mimic the way that your breasts look like before. And then after that, I had um, another surgery because I had a little bit of a complication with the, the device that I had under my chest wall. Mm -hmm. And then about a month later, I had the exchange surgery where I took out those expanders and I replaced it with a breast implant. And that was when I, I could really sort of move on with the next step of my life. But, you know, so, it's, so all the surgeries, it sounds like, um, but tell me if I'm wrong, that they're done sort of um, in tandem with one another pretty much at the same time frame. Is that right? It depends on the type of procedure that you have. So we're, we're very lucky now. Um, there's been a lot of surgical advancements, even since 2015, when I had my procedure, where they can now do everything in one step. Basically, they call it direct to implant, where they remove the breast tissue, all the milk ducts, they put a breast implant in, they close you up. It's it's a really streamlined procedure in that sense. Um, but when I had it, it was uh, two separate procedures. And then I had an actual third one just because I had a bit of a little complication in there, but uh, it was still clustered within, within a three month period for okay. me. Okay. So you never had to experience the feeling of not having breasts really at all? Well, the first month, um, even though they had uh, filled my expanders a little bit, I was essentially breastless. So I had maybe a hundred cc's of saline um, under my chest wall, but uh, you know, I was walking around and it, it was such a funny thing. I just thought that everyone was staring at me. Right. You know, but I just had this scarlet letter of a big yeah. M for mastectomy on my chest and somehow everyone knew. And um, my boyfriend at the time who's now now my husband just kept telling me, you're crazy. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> no one's looking at you. <laughs> right. Yeah, no one's looking at you. This is all in your head. Um, and yes, yeah, so, I mean, it was, that was a very challenging time too, because I was, I was still in this relatively new relationship with this person I was getting a little bit more serious with. And um, I had no breasts. I felt hideous. I was recovering from this procedure. I, I had four surgical drains with, you know, fluid coming out of my body. It was, it was a whole ordeal. But um, going through that experience with, with my husband, um, I knew he was the one 
Right. It solidified things for you. Exactly. If he was able to, to strip those drains and, you know, waddle me to the bathroom and help me wash my hair and, you know, take care of me. And in this moment, he was in it for the long haul. So a positive to come out of a a very tough situation. Yes, that is. So I'm just going to ask a question um, that I wonder if other people are thinking as well. Um, So they're injecting you with saline. Is that what the implants are today? Those are the ones that that you that they're using? So primarily when they uh, do a breast implant, they'll use a silicone breast implant because it's just more natural. But when you're using the expander, if you think about it, it's like an empty balloon that they've placed under the chest wall. And so they, they take a needle, they stick it straight through your breast into this expander and they fill you with saline. And that's just kind of a placeholder until you get to the size where you say, okay, this, this looks like my old body. Or maybe you want to go bigger. Maybe you want to go smaller. You just get to that right size. And then they're able to easily drain that saline out, remove that empty balloon, and then replace it with, um, like I said, a special silicone implant um, that is made particularly for women who've undergone breast reconstruction to sort of mimic the same shape and size and feel of a real breast. And is that something that lasts a lifetime or do you have to redo that every several 10, 15 years? So implants are incredible now. I have uh, Natrell and Spira implants um, and they have, I think, what's essentially a lifetime tag on them. Wow. I know that there are a lot of women who just like the peace of mind of having kind of a fresh look. So every maybe 15, 20 years, they want to replace it just, you know, for their own sort of peace of mind. Um, and I think I would do that at some point, maybe, maybe uh, after children and your right. body so much. Um, but they are, I think, considered a lifetime device. That's wonderful. So that's really, you know, an important thing for women who are thinking of doing this to remember is that you can get this done. Uh, surgery is always, you know, something to contemplate very carefully, but this can be something that you can get done and then put behind you really um, and move forward. Absolutely. And, and I, the reason why I shared my story is I sort of wanted to be that that aspirational figure in this sort of world because we're constantly bombarded with um, negativity and surgical complications and how this was such a defining moment of their life. And you know, while it was a, a very pinnacle moment of, of my existence so far in my last 32 years of life, I, I haven't let it be the thing that defines the rest of my life. And there was a, a short period of time where I had this sort of boohoo feeling sad for myself and right. I was opportunities. And, and then I, I got to the point where I just said, you know what, the only person in my way is me and I can sit and feel sorry for myself <laughs> or I can continue to put myself out there the same way that I would have had I not had this surgery and I need to stop getting in my own way. Right. And then you did that um, and you did it really boldly because you modeled for Sports Illustrated, right? So that was a really big deal, I would imagine, after having the surgery. Yeah, it was uh, really, I think, sort of the mental turning point for me. And it had been a lot of years in the making. I, um, I was working this sort of dead-end job and came home and and hopped on Instagram. And I saw that a girl that I knew from the pageant world had just won this um, first annual Sports Illustrated open casting call. You know, I think 
all of us who are in our, our 30s and 40s know how iconic the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition was growing up, having that magazine and seeing those beautiful, incredible women and, you know, always having that be the big dream in the back of our heads, you know, oh, I wish I could do something like that someday. Um, and here it was kind of this, this tangible thing you could, anybody could enter, you know, anybody could submit a little 60 second video on, on Instagram and maybe have the editors of this magazine see you. And so I just threw all caution to the wind. I said, look, I can't, I can't work this job anymore. I just finished my master's degree, but I was, uh, I was working this crappy job. And I said, you know what, anything's better than this. So I'm just going to, you know, put myself out there and go for it. Um, and about 48 hours later, I got an email from, from Sports Illustrated. They said, come to Miami. We'd love to meet you. And um, it was really sort of the, the beginning of the next chapter where I said, look, this, this doesn't have to be the thing that, that limits right. my life. No, not at all. What, what an empowering moment for you, I'm sure it was. And I think for everyone listening is that this really, I think you're saying it so beautifully, it really, it doesn't have to define you. But what I'm struck by is that it doesn't have to define you, but you have taken your life um, in a direction that sort of um, encompasses this, right? Because now you're the founder of this not-for-profit um, Previver. I love that name. Um, and explain to us a little about what you're doing in that organization. Sure. So I had spent, um, you know, really years since my surgery, uh, personally chatting with women who had undergone this procedure and they were continuing to ask, um, these sort of questions and really personal stuff, you know, right. Your breast implants, how was your, uh, sex life impacted after surgery? You know, all, all these sort of things that I assumed somebody must have this compiled on the internet. There must be some place right. where we can go and get get information and learn about it all. And then I realized no one has done this yet. Wow. Especially for young women. I mean, this is really considered an old woman's disease in large part. And um, there weren't resources for women in their their 20s and their 30s, whether it was um, relationships, uh, fertility, you know, everything that sort of impacts you at this earlier stages of your life. And so um, I thought, okay, well, how can I fill the gap here? And I just started trying to find those blind spots in the breast cancer community. And I just plopped my butt on my couch. And I said, if it doesn't exist, I'm going to build it and taught myself how to build a website, wow. uh, learned how to do, you know, graphic design, all of these sort of things. And just over about a six month period, um, I built this digital platform for women to be able to come access information and, and learn about their options for mastectomy in a really digestible and easy way to comprehend. Um, and it wasn't scary. It wasn't like if you type mastectomy into Google, it's the worst possible thing that you can do. It <laughs> happened to a woman, uh, right? Exactly. So I wanted to be the, I always call it the, the Wikipedia of mastectomy. I wanted you to be able to one-stop shop, come to the previver, find all the information and be able to walk away feeling more empowered, um, more educated about the process. And then maybe if you're, you're talking to your surgeon and they're saying, oh, well, you know, I don't think you're a candidate for this. You can advocate for yourself and say, well, actually I am. And here's a resource that tells me that I can. Right. So 
you know, is putting putting women back into the driver's seat of their healthcare choices and, and allowing them um, the ability to make that decision for themselves instead of solely relying on a healthcare provider. No, I think I think that's really wonderful because I think we learn from one another. And, you know, it's funny whenever I'm, you know, looking to purchase something, right, even on Amazon, I'm always looking at reviews, right? I always say that's the best source of information is what are other people saying about this item that I want to purchase. And I think it's across the board that way. What are other people who have gone through this saying, rather than just, you know, some male doctor somewhere who says this is right for you, or that's wrong for you. Let's speak to women who really can say this is what I went through. So I think that it's a really powerful tool. And I'm, I'm curious, um, I know that it's much less common for men, but they do get breast cancer, right? So is there anything on your site for men? So right now we are primarily focused towards women. We obviously have some statistics on there that let men know that it's it's not as rare as you think um, and that men can develop breast cancer at some point in their lifetime. And for me, what I've really tried to do and advocate, you know, particularly during this whole coronavirus pandemic is, is teaching people how to do a self-breast exam and the importance of knowing what's normal for their body. Right. And this is it's applicable for men and women um, because the earlier you know your baseline, the the lumps and bumps and crevices of your body, particularly in your you know your clavicle, armpit area, your chest area, um, you know when something's different. Right. And, and this should really become a habit for for men and women alike because um, you know it's not just breast cancer; it's all kinds of different issues. And you know your body better than anybody else. And, and most women find their own breast cancer and they do it through things like a self-breast exam or just by accident, you know, laying in bed. Right. This doesn't feel right. Um, and so it was, it was a real goal of mine to, to teach women how to do the self-breast exam, not just remind them, but to say, hey, here, here's how you do it. It's pretty simple. Right. And then um, when to worry, because it's easy to get scared once you start feeling around there, because it's always call it like a mountain terrain, you know, there's, there's lumps and bumps and valleys and, and rivers right, and all right. of that. And um, that's totally normal uh, for most women. And so you want to know, okay, this is my normal. And then if you're starting to feel anything different, then maybe go and talk to your physician about it. Right. Because knowledge is always power, even if it's scary and it is scary to, to face things head on, to do that examination, maybe to find something to go to the doctor. This is all a frightening experience. But I think, as you said, it's something that the sooner you do, the better off you will always be. So it, it's something that should be done regularly to catch anything early um, if it's there. Um, so let's walk forward for a minute because I'm excited to tell everybody that you are now pregnant. <laughs> um, congratulations. That's just wonderful news, um, especially after undergoing all of this. So um, you didn't do this the traditional way, right? You were very concerned about the genetic mutation being passed on, right? Yes. So I am a carrier of a very rare X-linked um, chromosomal disorder called Wiscott-Aldridge syndrome. And this is something that um, claimed the lives of several of my uncles growing up. Um, I have a cousin now who uh, is really uh, an older living um, person living with this disease because it can be very deadly, particularly for, for young males and women are carriers of it. And so that was another one of those little tidbits of advice that my mom had put in that letter. And um, so I said, look, if, 
if I'm living in 2020 and I have the opportunity to undergo a procedure like IVF and they can already by day five of embryo development tell you if your baby or your future child is going to have this genetic mutation and you can eliminate that from your family tree. I said, this, this is the right decision for me because I was able to not only protect my future male children, but I was also able to eliminate any female carriers. So that mutation ends with me. Wow. Um, no one in my family, if we continue to use these, these healthy embryos will, will have to face this disease again. And that's a, it was a very empowering um, opportunity that I had. I think that's absolutely the hugest moment to be able to say, you know, this stops with me. So it's just so wonderful that technology has allowed for that and be able to give you so much peace of mind because I'm sure otherwise your pregnancy, having child, children would be somewhat bittersweet, always worrying in the back of your mind, could this, could this turn out badly? So the ability to stop that is so wonderful and so important for other women to know they can do this. It can yeah, be the, the mind blowing thing for me. And what was the most exciting is I, I decided to share um, my story publicly and sort of take people along the way of what it was like to undergo the IVF process and then subsequent genetic testing. Um, and I, I also was really lucky. I grew up in Washington, DC, which is the home of Shady Grove Fertility. And they're one of the world leaders, um, not only in IVF, but in this genetic testing. And so um, they were nice enough to kind of let me document the procedure, you know, what it was like to give yourself injections and to do an egg retrieval and, and all of that. And um, as the time went on and more and more people started following along, these women who carried the breast cancer gene mutation, which I didn't have, um, were saying, man, this felt like a death sentence, not just for me, but for, for my future children. And, and I've considered not having children because I'm so terrified of passing this on to them. You know, it's a 50, 50 right. chance to my son or my daughter. And they said, it, it's such a relief to know that this is an option for me. Yes. So that's why it was really important for me to continue to share and then to share the success story that, you know, at the end of the day, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel of all of this. And, and that's a healthy child. And you really can't ask for, for anything more than that. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, quick question. Um, I know like in Angelina Jolie's case, she took out not, she, she removed not just her breast, but also took out her ovaries. Is this a mutation that you have something that would affect that as well? Is that something that other women should also be worrying about if they have a mutation in their breasts? So I am actually just one of the unlucky people who has a lot of breast cancer in my family, but has no known genetic link to breast cancer. So we don't carry a breast cancer gene mutation, whether it's BRCA1 or 2. Um, there's a lot of other known mutations. I don't carry any of them. I've, I'm continuing to get tested because what my doctor had said is it's very unlikely that you don't carry something. We just might not be able to test for it yet. And science is continuing to, to evolve and we're always learning about new gene mutations. And so I'm going to continue to stay vigilant. Um, but Angelina Jolie carried uh, one of the breast cancer gene mutations. And with that comes an increased risk um, of breast and ovarian cancer. So for people who have that breast cancer gene mutation, 
um, it's definitely on the horizon to look out for um, maybe having your ovaries removed at some point in your life and then also having a preventative surgery like a mastectomy. Okay. Okay. So that's good to know also. So this is uh, just a wealth of information. I don't want to let you go without asking. So I know your mom wrote this great letter to you and she was right about so many things, but she write about the type of man that you chose. Yes, she was. And it's funny that you asked that because I was just having this conversation with a friend the other day where I said, um, people always ask me, you know, do you think that that your mom would be, you know, happy with your spouse or is the type of person that you, you would have picked. And um, the day that we got married, I remember going back and reading that letter and, and I didn't even remember that there was this very poignant piece about, you know, if you find a partner someday, I would hope that he is like this or this, or I think this might be good for you. And um, I think she would absolutely love my husband and he has, he has stepped up to the plate and so far exceeded my expectations for a partner, um, particularly in, in the tough times, um, whether it came from family loss or having the surgery or uh, moving or you know all these different challenges you have in your life. And um, I think she couldn't have picked a better guy had she done it herself. Wow, that's so beautiful to hear. You know, I always like to say, you know, we, we have this vision as, as little girls, as children, um, of what we want for ourselves, right? I want this kind of husband or that kind of wife. And I always say, you know, sometimes we get lucky and the universe has bigger plans for us than we have even for ourselves. So it sounds like that happened for you. So I'm so happy. It definitely um, happened for me. And my husband also is a spitting image of Prince Eric. So as a kid, if I was growing up with a big crush on the Disney <laughs> prince, I definitely married him. So I feel like awesome. a very lucky <laughs> Perfect. You see, so you're lucky in so many ways and you've turned something unlucky into something that will really bring luck for a lot of people. Because if they do heed your advice, catch this early, they can save their lives. So um, I'm so happy to have spoken with you because we need people out there um, taking stands and positions and being spokespeople for important things. And this is certainly something that is so important. Our health, um, as they say, uber alles, right? Over mm -hmm. everything. I know you're, you're living in Germany now, right? I, so. Guess, so I was like, that's great German you just did there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's nothing more important. I mean, when we have our health, we can work on everything else, but when we right. don't, there's nothing else that matters. So I'm so happy that you are doing well and that you're going to have this wonderful um, child to welcome into this world soon. So let's uh, keep in touch and see where you're at. Absolutely. Yeah. Three, three more months to go. Um, and I am I'm as excited as I am to be pregnant. I'm just as excited to not be pregnant. Yes. <laughs> I get that. Come, come April of uh, 2021, hopefully we'll be moving into a, a post COVID-19 world and I'll uh, have a nice little baby to snuggle to. I, I am optimistic to hear about it. Thank you again, Alan. It's been really such a pleasure and so informative. My honor. It's great to chat with you.